Hey guys, Kim here. We are so excited to get started on season two. Thank you for your patience. About to hear from Denise, who's married to someone who's gone through some pretty serious stuff and just thought it'd be a good time to remind you of the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline for the United States, which is 1-800-273-8255. In Australia, the Lifeline Crisis Hotline is one three. One 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 four. If your life is in danger, the number to dial in Australia is zero zero zero. In the United States, of course, it's nine one one. Don't do trauma alone. We're glad to be with you, but make sure you get the help that you need and deserve. Thanks. This podcast contains sensitive content, which some may find disturbing. Information shared here should not be construed as medical advice. If you or someone you love needs help with trauma, chronic pain, or anything else we discuss here, please seek out a medical professional. All resources shared are for entertainment purposes only. All content represents the opinions of Kim and Anna and any special guests and do not necessarily reflect the positions of any organizations they work for. This is not ideal, but we're going with it. A mother-daughter podcast about chronic pain, trauma, mental illness, and more. Kim is a trauma therapist and certified addiction counselor who lives in Pennsylvania, USA. And her daughter, Anna, is a scoliosis sufferer and trauma survivor living in the tropical north of Australia. Join us each week as they discuss topics from their life experiences. Welcome to the show. Hello and welcome. This is Not Ideal, but we're going with it, the podcast. I'm Kim and I'm the mom. And I'm Anna and I'm the daughter. And we have a special guest with us here today who would also like to say hello. Hi, this is Denise. I'm a mother and a daughter. Yay. (laughs) And Denise, I have known Denise since 2001. She and I worked together in an island, on an island in upstate New York, a summer camp. Wonderful, wonderful uh, ministry experiences that we've had. And um, she's also been a student in another program that my husband led. You you said you were the first and only married person in that program, Denise. Is that right? Yes, I was. Um, I was the only person who was accepted because my husband was in Iraq at the time. So I, even though I was a newlywed, they accepted me into the program. Wow. So we are so glad you're here. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome, Denise. And I would just like to give her a quick intro. Denise is here today to talk to us about something that is very important. It's about how to exist alongside a loved one who has been through something traumatic and who has developed post-traumatic stress disorder. We are looking forward to hearing from her. Uh, So Denise, I would love for you to tell some of our story. And we can start at the very beginning because I think at the beginning, uh, mom even makes a guest appearance. Isn't that right? I mean, you both do. Oh, really? Yeah, but I was teeny tiny. (laughs) Well, that still counts. I mean, so when I, um, I grew up going to Tapawingo, it's a all girls camp. That played a big role in my life. I always felt that it was the place that I got to know God as um, an individual instead of just like mm-hmm. learning from your parents and kind of following whatever your family was doing. And mm-hmm. um, so Tapawingo has a special place in my heart for a lot of reasons. Um, I still have friends to this day that I only know from going to Tapawingo mm-hmm. as a kid. Um, but yes, <laughs> I knew Anna when she was, oh, four, five. That sounds about right. Um, and then um, that was when I was 21. And then um, Kim was the director of that camp at the time. And she didn't really know what to make of me. She was 
she had some very serious wisdom when it came to dealing with the crazy counselors there. Oh, that's good to and hear. <laughs> I, I came to her on our closeout meeting of the summer saying, I don't know what's going on in my life. I'm a college student. I feel like God is telling me that that's not going to continue. And I feel like God is telling me I'm getting married really soon. And I don't even have a boyfriend. I don't know what this is all about. And I think a lot of women would be tempted to say very vague things or, well, you know, maybe you should pray about that. And she was just very discerning in that moment and said, well, Mm. you have a good head on your shoulders and you're leaning on God. So if that's what he's telling you, that's what he's telling you. (laughs) Oh, I am wise. And um, (laughs) That's the same thing she said to me when I had those same feelings. (laughs) Well, I kind of forgot about that conversation until six months later, I ran into a guy who, and thought immediately I'm marrying this guy. Wow. And I kind of didn't think about that conversation again until six months later, I walked into a church after joining the army after September 11th, which I'll get back to in just a second. And, um, I saw him and thought, wow, I think I'm going to marry this guy. And that conversation flashed back. That's so cool. That conversation of, when when it's clear and when you are where you're supposed to be and doing what you're supposed to be doing and nothing about your life is shifty or you're not trying to like make something happen and it's not you and something is dumped in your lap like that like this that conversation came back to me of like well like who am I to say no to that mm. you know and so anyway so um we got engaged two days later and got married <laughs> two months after that oh my two so, days wait two days after you met him you got engaged that would be correct oh my goodness and props to my mom as well she it was a similar kind of thing I called my mom I was in the military I was in Alabama and I called my mom and I said mom I think I met the guy I'm gonna marry and her response was that's nice dear <laughs> <laughs> Which, I mean, what are you going to do when you're in New Jersey? Like, come on. So anyway, so to back up just a smidge, um, when I got home from Tapawingo, that was the summer of 2001. And I wasn't sure I wanted to go back to college. I wasn't sure what was going on. I always wanted to join the military. My parents always told me they wanted me to go to college first and that I could always get that paid for after the fact. So that's what I did. Um, And I was a college athlete. So there was always, always that was involved as well. But um, I, I could see the towers burning from my house on 9-11. Wow. Um, and so I couldn't handle that. Um, as a 21-year-old, I found that very difficult to deal with mentally because mm-hmm. I am one of those people where nothing affects me. Mm-hmm. Nothing bothers me. I, you know, I've seen horrific accidents and I don't get affected by, by physical um, issues that are going on like that. I'm always the one to trust in a trauma situation. I keep a really cool head. I kind of go to a different place. I remember one time when my brother got seriously wounded as a kid and my mom fainted and I had to take care of him at 12 years mm. old. And I just always been good in those kinds of situations. I could mm. not handle September 11th. Wow. I couldn't. Mm. So I joined the army the next day. Wow. I told my mom I was going to wait a week, but I didn't. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, mom. <laughs> Can I ask you something just to quickly interject? Yeah. I obviously have no idea what, what that would have been like, but what was it like to, because I'm guessing you went to you went somewhere to enlist. Is that right? Like you went to an office somewhere? Oh, yes. I went in. I went into the the closest place. I, I don't remember if I looked it up or asked someone, but I went to the, the closest place I could find um, where I was pretty sure I remembered there being a recruiting station and just walked in there. And um, I said, what do I have to do? Wow. And were there a lot of other people there? There were not. Really? 
Yeah, because in my mind, I guess everybody would have been rushing to enlist after being so close to the towers just after it happened. It was a lot of people, um, but I think I might have beat the rush Ah. because I was the very next day and people were still in shock and people were still, I mean, I don't know a single person who didn't know someone who was in Manhattan that day. Mm. So my father was in Manhattan that day. I, my best friend went to Pace University. I had been in the towers the day before wow. because wow. the trains that go, the, pa- the path train that goes underneath the water that would bring you into Manhattan um, would bring you into the basement of the World Trade Center. So I was wow. in the towers the day before on a subway to visit my friend at college and it took us three days to get her out. And so like the, I don't know a single person who didn't know someone who was there. Wow. So it was kind of, I think I just kind of beat that rush because everybody was still searching for people that they knew for the first two weeks. I mean, it was, well, first two months. It was so much of that. So your enlistment date is actually September 12th? Well, when you sign, you get to postpone until it works the best for whatever job you're going to have and you need to take a test. Oh, I see. So although I started signing papers the very next day and I left um, before Thanksgiving. Wow. Wow. So um, I, I feel like that, Although that was very traumatic for so many people in our country, I felt like just enlisting was my coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. And I felt like that helped me. And I never had any other issues from that experience. Mm. I never dealt with any sort of trauma issues or, or struggling with some of the stuff that my friends went through. Some people who were down there who had panic attacks. My cousin's brother was downtown at the time he saved people. He ended up dying because of lung cancer. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so many, there's just endless stories Mm -hmm. like that. And I never had to deal with anything beyond that moment. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, my mother worked at a daycare at the time and she had children there whose parents didn't show up to pick them Mm up, you know, that kind of thing. I didn't, I didn't have to deal with anything like that. And then I was gone, you know, that was kind of my first experience with anything where I could see a whole lot of people dealing with trauma Mm -hmm. at the same time. It's what got me interested in psychiatry. It's why I have a Christian counseling degree. Um, It's why I headed in that direction. Um, It's why I went into foster parenting. Mm -hmm. Um, It had a lot to do with the formation of my future from that moment on. Um, But trauma-wise, I don't feel like it affected me beyond, you know, that that initial reaction that was just so jarring because no one could really believe what was happening. So... Mm Skip back forward again to meeting my husband. We got married right away. We fent- spent the first two months of our marriage or our engagement apart. Then we got married. He was also in the military, yes? Yes. The, we met in school right after basic training. And then he went to Virginia to a different school. Then I got very ill um, and had to be medically discharged from the military. Mm. That was so traumatic because I thought, you know, I had signed up for six years and I thought this was going to be my life for the next 30. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had no mm-hmm. plans to ever get out. So that was just a very huge change of d- trajectory for me that I was not expecting. But I kind of, you know, I knew I was getting married. I had a wedding to plan. There was a lot going on. And I got to go back home after some, you know, crazy stuff of being in and out of the hospital constantly, which is always so much fun. Um, in Alabama, away from all of my family, where they wouldn't, you know, my, I told my mom not to get on a plane because they wouldn't have let her see me anyway. Um, so it was, you know, very different experience down there in Alabama. But I met my husband. We knew we were getting married. So we decided not to fight my discharge, med- my medical discharge, and just go with it. And that, mm-hmm. you know, we would just be together faster if we did it that way. So 
Um, he ended up, we got married. He left two days after our wedding to go to Germany. I was stuck wow. in New Jersey. And then as soon as I got to Germany, he was in the field for a month and then he got back from the field and he got orders to go to Iraq. Mm. So this is all right after the new year in 2003. Mm. So this mm. is when all of the stuff in Baghdad went down and he went straight into Baghdad. He was the first wave of people that went in there. And we spent, um, on our two year wedding anniversary is when he got back and we had spent less than two months together face to face since the day that we met. So on our two year wedding anniversary, we were kind of still strangers. That was the period of time when I did Lyft. And can you just explain what Lyft is just because our listeners may not know that. Lyft is in the same location as Tapawingo, the camp Tapawingo. And um, Kim's husband, Nate, ran it at the time. And Kim did a lot with the program at the time as well. Anna was still a little one. Um, and it is a leadership program for college age students. Mm-hmm. And so even though um, I was married, they accepted me into the program as, you know, on my own without my husband. Um, and I was college age at the time. I was 22. Leaders in further training, right, is what it stands for? Yes. Um, but it was very difficult because it, it made me feel further away mm-hmm. from my husband. So it was a very difficult time. Um, I actually ended up leaving the lift program a smidge early because they said that Steven was going to be getting back from Iraq. And then the day I got to Germany, they extended him in Iraq. And so I ended up not seeing him for another six Mm. months anyway. Um, So it was a lot. It was a Mm -hmm. lot. (laughs) But um, I always felt like through all of that, that he was the one going through so much. And so that helped me so much of like not having a pity Mm -hmm. party because... Mm -hmm it kept me so strong to be like, well, I'm his support, Mm -hmm. you know? And so when you are there as the support for someone, you get so much satisfaction out of being a helper. Mm -hmm. Now, not everyone, not everyone has that personality, but to feel so needed and that you can actually just your presence, not what you can do for somebody, but just your presence has so much value. Mm -hmm. There's so much in that. So then moving on, he got back from Iraq. We got out of the military a year later. Um, We moved to New Jersey. I found out I was pregnant. We moved to Florida and bought a house. Now, can I I ask a question here? Yeah. Did did he have a um, trauma? Did you know there was a trauma issue right away? Or was this something? Okay. No, that's why I'm getting all the way to Florida because that's That's when it happened. So we had a full year in Germany where we're both, I worked full time and he worked full time. Mm-hmm. Um, then we went to New Jersey. He went to college for a full year and I got pregnant. And then we decided to buy a house in Florida near his family. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about a full year in Germany and a full year in New Jersey. Life was stressful. He was, he was, um, highly, he could be agitated easily. He, he would talk to me about how he was not out, outwardly angry, but he would find himself inwardly so quick to be angry so then when we moved to Florida and we had our first child, he could not cope. It mm. was like the flip mm. of a switch. He was working full time. I was working full time. I had a newborn. I found out I was pregnant again within three months. I was doing wow. all of the running around of my daughter for daycare. I was... Holy cow, girl, you've had a crazy <laughs> life. <laughs> and all he was doing was going to work and coming home. And like, that was it. He was not leaving mm-hmm. the sofa. And mm-hmm. so it was like, as soon as my daughter was born, it felt to me, it felt like the flip of a switch. To him, it felt like the inward stuff was finally coming out. 
Hmm. is kind of how he has explained it to me in the past was that how he was feeling on the inside was getting to a point where it couldn't help but bubble over. Mm -hmm. So we didn't know what was going on. We just knew he was not functioning as a person. I mean, not functioning. So he's thinking, oh, maybe it's, you know, maybe I need to work out. Maybe I need to eat better. And my husband is crazy physically fit to still to this day. Um, and he's thinking, oh, maybe that's it. I need to like join the gym and, and get into like cycling. And he's a, an amazing um, drummer. And so he's like, maybe I should get a drum set. And we, were, we kept looking for these fixes of like, what mm. the heck is wrong with you without ever having conversation, never having a conversation about the military. Ne- that never occurred to either one of us. Mm. Hmm. Um, trauma never occurred to us. His mother has dealt with depression. My mother has dealt with depression. And so it's just was one of those things of like, maybe you need to go see somebody. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's just, you're just depressed. Mm -hmm. Um, and everyone we talked to their suggestion was, Oh, put him on medication. Mm -hmm. That was the only suggestion we got from everybody everywhere. We looked, it was, it was a Hmm. lot. It was sleeping at really odd hours, even though he had a normal job. Like I'd come home with my little one. I mean, he could sleep through anything. It was, it was just for him. It was mostly just not functioning. Mm-hmm. So the symptoms manifested a little differently than maybe you were trained to notice normal PTSD. You know, like he wasn't, was, was he doing things like waking up screaming in the middle of the night? Like that's a pretty clear sign. Oh, PTSD. he didn't, he didn't have any of that. Huh? He didn't have flashbacks. Um, he, he had a a lot of trouble with loud noises, fireworks, um, that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff, but Mm -hmm. that was from day one of coming home. So that Mm -hmm. we were used to, that was, he always struggled with that. And so he finally decided to go see someone, which was a very, very hard decision because he was considering going back in the military and he didn't want anything to be on his record. Mm -hmm. And so there was kind of this, I can't do that even though at this point I actually think I should do that Mm -hmm. because who knows what that might mean for me and my career. So he finally said, he was like, well, you know, maybe I can just go see somebody and if they don't prescribe me anything and I never go see him again, no one would ever know. Like how would anybody find out? You know, if, and so he, he went to see somebody, he recommended medication, but he also just threw out this idea of maybe he had PTSD. Hmm. So Hmm. within three days, it was starting to get better. He Hmm. was willing to talk about it. He was willing to kind of put that label on it. He was willing to say, well, if it is PTSD, well, then it's happening because of something. So maybe I should start talking about the something. Hmm. What could the something be? Hmm. Then all of a sudden it was a puzzle that might be have a solution. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't Hmm. that it was like, oh, it's going to be a, I'm going to figure this out and be cured. It was now I have a direction to go in that makes sense. And Denise, what was it like for you to hear uh, PTSD? I think that the bitterness that I had was at a maximum level. Mm-hmm. He was not doing anything. Mm-hmm. He was not supporting me as a spouse. He was not helping with my daughter. I was pregnant again and I felt completely alone. I was doing all the bill paying, all the, I he got let go from his job. I was making all the money. I was doing all the cleaning, cooking, bill paying, I mean everything. So you're just not, feeling like he's exiting basically. Yeah. Oh mm-hmm. yeah. And 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 I mm-hmm. feel like within the first maybe month 
of the PTSD, like maybe this is your diagnosis. Maybe this is something we want to investigate. I was so much better because mm-hmm. I was I was seeing mm-hmm. the changes in him immediately. And I was seeing, oh, this isn't just who my husband is. Right. So like as soon as you started talking, you started to see some some changing. Yes. And okay. and I feel like I think we've shifted the tide completely as far as I need to get help, but we have not shifted in what's it going to cost me. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a brother who ended up going to counseling because he was like, well, I can't trust a stranger and I don't know anybody else who goes to counseling. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't have anybody mm-hmm. to recommend it to me. Nowadays, it's it's enough out there. We're talking about like years and years ago go with my brother. But like I'm talking about nowadays, like if you want a therapist, you could probably go on Facebook and say, hey, anybody love their therapist? Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't be weird. Yeah, I was just going to say, so Denise, you said just before that you, at this point in your marriage, you really felt like your husband was withdrawing just about every possible form of support and involvement. And once he started to get help, you said you started to see a difference within a few days. How did your marriage begin to change, hopefully for the better, once he sought help? It took a long time to rebuild the trust. It took a very short time for hope. Hmm. We Hmm. had conversations like, we're both miserable, but we now know that we are headed in the right direction together, and we both are going to fight to make it better every day. And it's going to be a long, a long-term process. Yes. Mm-hmm. We had conversations of, we both trust God supremely. We both love each other. We are both going to choose each other every day, no matter how we feel, no matter how checked out and zoned out we feel or how bitter we feel. And we both want it to be better. So we need to take one step forward every day. And so my bitterness took mm-hmm. a long time to go away. Mm-hmm. And it was something I had to do consciously because whenever I would stop thinking about it and think that it was okay, it would creep right back in. Every little, mm-hmm. like if I came home one day and I felt he hadn't done something like that one day, it was like, oh, okay, great. I guess he's checked out again. Like that was my natural reaction. It was my natural stance. And so yeah. um, it took it took a long time. Mm-hmm. You have to figure out how my husband going and riding his bicycle and checking out for that short period of time brings him back to me healthier. Mm -hmm. I need him Mm -hmm. to take care of himself. I should be proud of him for taking care of himself. I should be thrilled that he cares enough to speak up for himself and recognize those moments of, okay, Yes, I am bitter. And yes, the house is disgusting, but I need to keep my mouth shut right now. You know, like you have to find those moments of celebrating a person finding themselves again or being able to do things again. I think what prepared me for that is when we were growing up, my mom was kind of losing her identity as a mom because that's all she really ever wanted to be. And then she started to realize if all I am is a mom, I'm going to kind of lose myself. And um, she really started struggling and she, she joined a choir that competed in competitions and did all this stuff and had all these, you know, once a week at least meetings with other women that were supporting each other. And I saw what that did to her when I was quite young. 
And I feel that left a very lasting impression on me of how self-care is very difficult to go to watch your spouse self-care when it also feels extremely selfish. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Especially if you felt like he's been withdrawn and now you, you just got him back. That, that right. can be hard to, to figure out, like, you know, letting, letting him or, or vice versa, letting both of you, you know, take care of yourselves and figuring out what's the balance. It's a lot of conversations. It's a lot of awkward conversations. It's a lot of, I have to think about this. I can't just react in these moments, conversations. But the ones that were always there was, I want tomorrow to be better. I want us to work it together. I want it to, you know, every step of the way is is this background conversation of, are we still on the right trajectory mm-hmm. of healing? And, you know, when we had a setback or some sort of like, I just felt I couldn't take it anymore. Then I was realizing, oh, maybe it's become all about him right now. And I'm not taking care of myself. Right. You know, especially Mm -hmm. as a mom with, you know, I had two young kids and then we adopted out of foster care. So I had a one, two, three and four year old when all of this was going on. And so, and I was in college full time. And so I feel like I got to these points all the time where every time I was losing it with him, it was because I had neglected myself mm-hmm. for way too long. Mm-hmm. Um, I had some health crises during that time. I had to I had to get my tubes tied when I didn't want to because of health situations. I had, you know, I always wanted tons of kids. Well, God took care of that. Um, and, <laughs> you know, it was a lot going on all at once. And so much of it was about him, which was fine. Mm. I was okay with that, but I was not taking care of myself. And I think that that is such an interesting way to look at things because I honestly, I totally agree. You really have to look out for yourself in order to be a person who can also support your loved one. Yes. And I think if you're going through a traumatic experience or if you're supporting someone in a traumatic experience or afterwards, you will live your life in segments. This segment, it's Mm -hmm. all about the person going through this trauma. This segment, I'm going to go take care of myself so I can come back better. This, you know, it's like these little, like, break it down. Like, I need to go take care of myself so I can come back stronger for you. But this was when we just, he had been let go from his job. We moved to New York. We moved to Camp of the Woods, which is a Christian retreat center. And all of a sudden, for the first time in our marriage, we had a group of people that we felt supported by Mm. because we never lived by family. So you really entered like a really healthy community. Is that it? Yes. And because we had that little key to the door before we moved there of, I need to take care of myself. I'm the reason I am the, you know, the reason that I've been the way that I've been is because I've just been trying to ignore it. um, And I can't do that. That was that we had worked through some of that in Florida before we got there. And then once we got there, especially for Steven, got him outside of his own brain because all he had been doing was sitting with his own feelings and thoughts in a room. And he met a couple veterans when we moved there. Mm. Um, and so there were a lot of little pieces of this idea of, you know, you, you talk yourself in, in, inside your own head in such a dialogue that can go so negative and you can't get yourself out of that negative cycle and sometimes if you're just talking to other people, it can break that, that inner dialogue, that negative self-talk, um, that repetitive cycle of what you're thinking, because 
PTSD traps you in this circle of thought that just is a negative downward spiral. It's why we see so many veterans committing suicide is you get in this downward spiral that is so hard to get out of. And the, one of the big things is they isolate themselves and they convince mm-hmm. themselves of things in this downward spiral. And you need other people in your life to break that. So that was a huge piece of the puzzle for us. So during that period of time, was there anything that you would have done differently or? I think I probably would have um, kept up better with our triathlon training. There was such a physical element to both of our healing and training for triathlons together, which is something we did in Florida, was such a, a huge first step because it was something that we committed to do together. It was a goal that we were, we trained for it together. We did the triathlon together. It was a big thing that we committed, like, it was almost like, I don't know about the rest of this marriage, but we're in this triathlon. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think it was like this goal that we had that decided that, Hey, like, we don't have anything that we're working towards together as a couple. This is a problem. And I think that once we moved to New York, because our lives were too busy, really to keep up with it, I think we we should have kept mm-hmm. up with that. I think it would have, um, I, and it didn't have to be that. It could have been anything. Because once he was like, he he was back on the track that he wanted to be living. He his his inner turmoil, like his inner dialogue, all of that was really where it needed to be. And he was living a much better life and healthy and doing what he needed to do as a husband and a father and a human to take care of himself and us. I still dealt with bitterness, and I think if we had had more goals that we were doing things together, that it would have been a little easier for me to come back around to not going, not worrying every time he like got irritated at something that, oh, great, he's going to like freak out or is going to be bad or, oh, here we go again. My life philosophy now as a teacher, as a mother is uh, live a life of intention. That is, that is my philosophy for the way that I want to live my life is I don't want things to just happen to me. I don't want to feel that helpless Mm. again. I don't want to see, I want to equip my children so that they don't have to feel helpless. I don't want my husband to feel helpless. You also have to be comfortable as a caregiver when the person going through something needs help from somebody other than you. That's a great point. We all know that we can't fix everything. We all know that we can't do everything for the person that we love and are trying to support. But we get (laughs) irritated when when we feel like we're doing the most stuff, but then something that helps them is someone mm-hmm. who they talk to one time. But I'm doing the most. Stuff. <laughs> I want to get the I want to get the rewards of being the special person you turn to all the time. No, we're we're right at the end, and we are so thankful for everything that all the stuff that you've already shared. But I'm just wondering um, if you could just kind of wrap it up for us with like where you guys are at now and what you, you know, definitely want people who are in the position that you have been in to know. Um, You've already said a ton, but is there anything else you want to make sure that we know before we close? I would say that grace for yourself and grace for the people in your lives is one of the biggest gifts and it doesn't come on its own. It will not happen naturally. You have to look for it. You have to search for it. You have to reach for it. If you don't feel it, start thinking about it. Start being intentional about it. Start trying to make a plan. What could I do to be more gracious with myself? 
what could I do to be more gracious with this other person? And no step in the right direction is too small. Well, that's a good word to end on. Well, thank mm-hmm. you so much, Denise, for being with us today, for sharing your story and and your journey with us and teaching us about um, what this has been like. And we are going to sign off. I'm Kim signing off and we will see you next week. And I'm Anna. I'm the daughter. And we will see you guys for episode two. Thank you, Denise. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. Bye. See you next week. Thank you guys for joining us today. Stay tuned for more podcasts from Anna and Kim on the new series, Not Ideal, But We're Going With It. Also, check out their new website at www.notideal.net.